This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 174. Happy New Year, Metamorphs! Welcome to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can find more of my work at chrislester.org and metamorcity.com. Each week I bring you a piece of my fiction, available in audio for the first time anywhere. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 32 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. No recap this week, folks. We're going straight to the story. Also, this chapter contains some adult content, so if you're listening at work or with children present, you might want to put in your earbuds for this one. The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 32, Tuesday, May 22nd. Morgan returned to the Forensic Investigations Office shortly after one in the morning. She pulled into her designated parking space, turned off the engine, and just sat there, leaning her head on the control yoke. She knew Amelie was probably already waiting for her, but she didn't care. Her emotions felt like skin that had been stripped raw. Even the slightest touch would be unbearable. I love you. Kate had said that, to her. I love you. Such simple words to carry such significance. They were the words Morgan had been aching to hear from Kate for more than two years. You idiot, she told herself. That wasn't what she meant, and you know it. For all Kate's many endearing qualities, bisexuality was depressingly not among them. Kate was a fierce and loyal friend, but she would never be more than that. Morgan knew she had to accept this. But still the words echoed in her memory. I love you. And then, even worse, Kate had made Morgan look into her eyes. Gods that had terrified her. Ever since Morgan had been freed from Braddock's control, ever since she'd gotten her free will back, she had been deathly afraid of what her hypnotic gaze could do. It was a kind of instinctive psychic attack, a vampire's will made manifest. All she had to do was meet someone's eyes, and her mind would immediately and reflexively press itself upon theirs, demanding their submission. It wasn't foolproof. Elves and most supernatural creatures were immune to it, other vampires could test their will against hers, and telepaths could raise defenses against it. But for most humans, Morgan's gaze would quickly put them into a dazed and compliant state, almost like a trance. She had used it on occasion, to scare rookie cops into being more careful, or to nudge truculent bureaucrats into cooperating with her. 
and in the privacy of her bedroom, when she let her darkest fantasies come out to play, she had imagined using it to do more. Just a few little hypnotic suggestions for her dear friend Kate, gentle nudges to make her more open to new thoughts, new ideas, new experiences. She would never do it, of course. She told herself this over and over again. She loved Kate, and using her powers to manipulate her in that way would be wrong. But it wouldn't hurt anyone to imagine it, would it? The fantasies grew in the months after her transformation, becoming more elaborate with repetition. She would picture a late night together in her apartment, a bottle of wine loosening inhibitions, and Kate deciding to act on those new thoughts for the first time. She pictured Kate kissing her, touching her, running her hands under Morgan's shirt. She closed her eyes and saw Kate lowering her head between Morgan's legs, sucking on her clit, running her tongue over Morgan's soaked labia, and discovering to her astonished delight that she enjoyed it more than anything. Morgan would play these fantasies through her mind over and over, masturbating furiously, until she came moaning Kate's name. Then, filled with equal measures of shame and longing, she would fall into the dreamless death sleep of the undead. The power of those fantasies haunted Morgan. They were a message from the deepest recesses of her own withered heart, and she hated herself for wanting them. Whenever Kate was around, she was doubly careful of where her eyes were pointing. She couldn't risk drawing Kate into a trance, even by accident. Like a recovering alcoholic, the best way to stay on the wagon was to never take that first drink. But then, when Kate actually invited her to do it there in the skimmer, her resistance had crumbled almost immediately. Nearly two years of fighting temptation, gone like they had never happened. She had let her vampire psyche off its leash, let it throw itself against Kate's mind and try to bring it under her control. All she'd had to do was not look, to refuse Kate's request and explain why she couldn't do it. It was, to use one of her favorite puns, dead simple. But Morgan had looked, and for some reason it hadn't worked. Kate was immune. Thank all the gods she was safe from the syndicate. She was safe from Morgan. But what if Kate had been wrong? What if Morgan had been able to break through whatever mystical defenses she had? What if Morgan had found herself facing the object of her fantasies? Kate sitting placidly before her, open, submissive, and suggestible. What would Morgan have done then? She wanted to believe that she would have done nothing. That she would have turned away, broken the trance, and gotten the hell out of there until Kate learned to be afraid of her again. But there was another part of herself that wanted something else. And Morgan had been feeding it with fantasies for two years. Suddenly, imagining felt a lot more dangerous than it used to. Not for the first time, Morgan felt like she was at war with herself. Two sides of her soul in conflict human and monster, light and dark, lover and predator, and she did not know which one would win. 
You got lucky tonight, she told herself bitterly. Someone handed you a drink, and like an idiot, you took it. It turns out the drink didn't have any alcohol in it, but you didn't know that when you said yes. You're just as guilty as if you fell off the wagon. You're just the only one who knows. Morgan wondered if she was really a better person than Malcolm and his ilk. She wondered if a vampire could be a good person, or if Mother Lilith had made them this way, broken, greedy, and depraved, so they would never get too close to the humans who were supposed to be their prey. She wondered if Kate would still love her, even as a friend, if she knew about the darkness inside her. Knuckles rapped lightly on her driver's side window. Morgan wiped her eyes and looked up at Amelie. The other woman was watching her through the glass with an expression of concern. Morgan opened the door. Sorry I'm late, she said, her voice low and rough from crying. Amelie let her climb out of the skimmer, then put a gentle hand on her shoulder. Morgan, dear, what's wrong? What's happened? Morgan shrugged off the hand and shut the door. I don't want to talk about it. She started walking for the stairwell, not waiting to see if Amelie would follow. They made their way down to the morgue in silence. Once they were behind closed doors, Morgan explained what they had found at the house of Nevenard Lido, including the five dead cultists who had erased any arcane signatures from the premises. I'd like you to have a look at them, if you would, Morgan said. See if anything about them draws your attention. She refrained from saying anything more, so as not to bias Amelie's observations. Amelie waved a hand in invitation. By all means. Morgan first pulled out the racks that held the five bodies. They were still in much the same state that Morgan had found them. There hadn't been time yet for any autopsies. Amelie closely examined each of the faces in turn, a slight frown creasing her brow. Morgan followed at her elbow, saying nothing. When Amelie came to the female cultist, she stopped. I know this one. This is Lorelei Trent. Morgan frowned and looked closer. Is it? House Trent had never been part of her family's social circle. She knew that Lorelei was one of Baron Trent's six daughters, but she doubted if they had seen each other in person more than five times in their lives. Without question, Amelie said. I spoke with House Trent last year about hosting a benefit dinner for the church. Lorelei was memorably opposed to the idea. Morgan went over to her office and woke up her computer. She did a quick WorldNet search on Lorelei's name. The images that came up did indeed look like the woman on the rack. She opened her records on the body and entered Lorelei Trent as a tentative identification. Amelie, meanwhile, continued to examine Lorelai's body. She sniffed at the dried blood around the woman's throat, then knelt beside the leg to examine the tattoo. This symbol looks vaguely familiar, she said. She didn't bother to raise her voice. Morgan's vampire senses could easily hear her from the next room, and Amelie knew it. I think I may have seen it before, or something like it. The others all have it as well. Morgan said. Indeed. Amelie went back to the other bodies, examining them with renewed interest. 
When Morgan came back out of the office, she was peering into the face of a South Morin man in his late thirties or early forties. Blood and ashes, Amelie murmured. It's Podrickin Ronan. You know him? Morgan asked. Unlike Lorelei, the name was not familiar. I did once. We attended Chisholm together. I didn't recognize him at first. The years have not been kind to him. Her hand reached out to touch the man's leg, then flinched back, which saved Morgan from lecturing her on touching the body before the autopsy. Her fingers lingered over the man's skull and arch tattoo, which was on his upper right thigh and about ten centimeters tall. I knew I had seen this before. Morgan raised her eyebrows. Considering the placement of the mark, only the skimpiest sort of swimwear would have revealed it. Do tell. Amelie looked away. Morgan thought she might have blushed if she had still been living. It was just a silly fling, back before I met Nathan. Sometimes I would change into human form and have some fun with the boys in the common room. She gestured at her face. This didn't feel like me back then. I had grown up a theriomorph, spent most of my life in my half-bat form. This was just a costume I put on. I liked the attention. She cocked her head, as if a thought had just occurred to her. Or, I suppose, I just liked not feeling alone. Morgan nodded soberly. She knew that feeling well enough. So this Podrick knew what you looked like the rest of the time? Yes, Amelie said, and he didn't want to touch me or be seen with me, except when I was wearing this face. She shrugged. I told you it was silly. We lasted two months, I think, before the indignity of it outweighed the satisfaction of having sex. She looked down at the tattoo again. But I do remember this. I thought it was very bold at the time. She snorted and shook her head. It looks ridiculous now. Did he tell you what it meant? Morgan asked. I'm sure he told me something. I'm quite sure he never mentioned being in a death cult, though. I dare say I would have remembered that. I should think so, yes, Morgan said dryly. So Podrick went to Chisholm, and I believe Lorelei did too, yes? She did, Amelie agreed. She was a junior during my freshman year. And Nevenard Leto was also an alumnus, Morgan mused. Do you suppose the rest of them were as well? It's possible. Amelie said. I could take some photographs and try to find out. I have a contact at the registrar's office. It couldn't hurt, Morgan said. Did you still want to see the files on the victims? Certainly, Amelie said. And then I should be going. I have some church business to attend to tonight. Amelie used her phone to photograph each of the cultists' faces, then helped Morgan return them to their lockers. After that, Morgan retrieved the dossiers on the victims. As with the set she had given Kate, these were broken out into beige and red files, representing the captives that had been killed quickly and those that had been malnourished and tortured. Amelie spent nearly half an hour examining the files, mostly in silence, though she occasionally asked Morgan to explain some bit of technical jargon. At last, she slid them back into their separate stacks and handed them back to Morgan. I'm afraid I don't see anything that would explain the connection between these people, Amelie said regretfully. 
None of them have had any dealings with the White, as far as I know. Sorry, my dear. It's all right. It was a long shot in any case. And I'd say you more than made up for it by identifying two of those bodies. I'm happy to help, Amelie said, bowing briefly. I'll let you know if I learn the identities of the others. In the meantime, you're wise to investigate the Chisholm connection. Any place that draws together that much wealth and power is likely to breed all sorts of conspiracies. Morgan smiled ironically and bowed in return. In that, Amelie, I feel we have little room to criticize. Michael turned over in his bed again. The numbers on the clock burned bright green in the darkness. 4.21 a.m. He had lost count of how many times he had woken during the night. His mind kept returning to that alley in Soulshore, and to the one on the street where all this had started for him. The Forest of the Lost. Every time he thought about what Pamela and Lisa had said, it haunted him. Someone is deliberately making people die, terrified and alone. Why? It was possible, of course, that there wasn't a practical reason. Some people just liked having power over others. It was a means to prove their own dominance, the control they had over their victim's life. Making their victim feel pain and fear was a means of gratifying their own twisted psyche. But that didn't feel right for this case. A killer who toyed with his prey like that was usually solitary. The fantasies they acted out on their victims were intensely personal. These murders had been committed by a group. There was one reason a group might want to terrorize a victim before killing them. Hatred. If the killers shared some kind of unifying racial, class-based, or religious prejudice, they might be motivated to act out their bigotry against members of the group they hated. That might explain the targeting of the street rats, but it would not explain the most dramatic cases, the so-called red files, where the victims had been confined and tortured. Those victims had come from all walks of life. There was another problem with that theory, too. Hate crimes like that were acts of uncontrolled rage. The bodies should have been beaten, their bones broken, their internal organs crushed. Sexual violation, either before or after death, would also be expected. Carefully draining the blood from the victim, while making it look like a vampire attack, wasn't something the perps would do in a situation like that. No, Michael was sure this was something different. The murders had been committed in a ritual way, surrounded by arcane trappings, that suggested that there was a practical reason for instilling as much fear as possible. Unfortunately, Michael knew next to nothing about magic, so he had no way of guessing what that reason might be. Frustrated, he took his phone off the bedside table and tapped out a message to Morgan. Hey, did you show Kate the video I sent you? What did she think? Kate herself would be asleep, probably but Michael expected Morgan to still be up and active. While he waited for a reply, he opened the news app on his phone and scrolled through the headlines. One drew his attention. Breaking. Police raid death cult in Soulshore. One arrested, five dead. Michael was stunned. 
he quickly opened the article and started skimming for highlights. As he'd suspected, the police in question were from SID. The reporters didn't have much information on how the police had found the suspects, but if they were already acting on information from the body in Solshore, then SID had moved faster than Michael would have thought possible. His phone chimed as a message from Morgan popped up. She saw it, and it helped. But then we had a lucky break, and she hasn't had the chance to follow up on it. I know, Michael texted back. I just saw the raid on the news. How did they find the suspects? There was a longer pause before the next reply. Kate's new partner identified the man in her augury, Morgan said. They went to school together. The crime lab at Justice is testing the DNA evidence from Solshore against samples Kate and Lizzie collected from the man's house. Michael frowned. So they don't have a match yet? Not yet, Morgan said. Michael paused, weighing how best to phrase his next question. So the entire raid was based on one officer identifying a person Kate saw in a vision? How did they get a warrant based on that? It was nearly a minute before Morgan responded. That is a very good question, she said. It's risky for SID, too, Michael said. If they don't find a match to the suspect on the body, they could end up having to release him. Morgan answered more quickly this time. Well, there was the little matter of the five dead bodies in his basement. She followed this with a winking smile icon. Lucky for them, Michael said. Let me know if you need any more help from my end, okay? Of course, Morgan said. Now you should try to get some sleep. I'll try, Michael said. Good night, Morgan. He locked the phone and set it back on his nightstand. The worries and questions he'd had before now had some disquieting new company. SID was supposed to be the best of the best. They were what other police in Metamore aspired to be. Yet their captain had taken a risk that Captain Montgomery would never have dreamed of taking. Divination magic was useful as a guide for investigation, but you couldn't use it as a substitute for hard evidence. What made them so sure they would find what they needed? It was a tantalizing question, but not one Michael was ever likely to get an answer to. His thoughts circled back to the question of motive. What were the cultists trying to accomplish, killing their victims the way they did? He tried to leave it alone, tried to sleep. Instead, he floated in a semi-conscious space between true sleep and waking, his thoughts free associating from one to another. The woman. The forest of the lost. Wandering spirits. Is that something that really happens? Can your ghost just get lost? What would that mean if it did? There were a lot of dead people in those files. What if more of their spirits are lost? What if they're all lost? That thought worried him enough to nudge him back toward wakefulness. He picked up the phone again and opened the WorldNet browser. He typed in Lost Ghosts and pressed the button to search. Hundreds of search results came up. The top result was a paid listing. Understanding Haunts. Lothanasi Order. While human spirits do not become ghosts, there are real supernatural entities that can be mistaken for human. Learn the different types of haunt phenomena 
and how to protect yourself. Michael skimmed briefly through the Lightbringer's site, but it was mostly concerned with protecting people from mischievous fairies and Daedra pretending to be ghosts. The Lothanasi seemed to take it as a given that human ghosts were not real, but it was unclear why they dismissed the possibility out of hand. The second listing was also a paid spot, and while it did not mention the Lightbringers, it seemed to be written in response to them. Ghosts are real. Do you feel haunted? Have you seen or heard things you can't explain? Do you want real answers? In-depth, honest investigation of paranormal phenomena. Reasonable rates. Discretion guaranteed. Skeptical, Michael clicked on the link. The site that loaded was for a paranormal investigator named Abby Preston. She claimed to be an esper and a telepath, and if her testimonials page was to be believed, she had hundreds of satisfied customers. Most of the quotes gave only first names, though, so it would be hard to verify whether they were legitimate. Michael went back to the search results and continued looking. He found a discussion forum that seemed to function as a support group for haunting victims. As he scrolled through the listings, Michael noticed that a large number of new discussion threads had been started in the last two months, around the same time that the kidnappings had begun. Ghost Sighting in Lower West Side My mother disappeared last week. Tonight I saw her in my room. Three Revenants near 53rd Street Ley Line Crying Ghosts at St. Teresa's Am I going crazy or am I haunted? Most of the threads had respondents who had themselves experienced similar phenomena. Everyone agreed that there seemed to be a lot more spiritual activity than usual though they disagreed widely on the cause. All were scornful of the Lothanasi's official ghosts-aren't-real explanation. Michael thought about posting a thread of his own, asking for information on the Forest of the Lost and how people became ghosts. He had trouble deciding how to phrase his inquiry, though. He couldn't give away any details of the investigation, nor could he tell people that he was a police detective. Without that context, his questions came off sounding nosy and intrusive, like a curious outsider pushing his way into a private meeting. Eventually, he gave up and put the phone back on the nightstand. Still, he reflected, his late-night research had confirmed two important details. First, there seemed to be a lot of people in Metamore who had seen ghosts. And second, the Lightbringers weren't taking their stories seriously. Which means that if there is something bigger going on here, he thought, the Lightbringers aren't going to see it. Not until it's too late. And that's the end of Chapter 32. Come back next time, when Kate has another mysterious dream, and then gets some disturbing info from Callie Linder. New Year's are a time for looking back and looking forward, for reflecting on the past and preparing for the future. So let's take stock of where I'm at in my writer's journey. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,262 words this week, 
over the course of 6.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 682 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 91 days without breaking my chain. I've just finished Chapter 13 of Homecoming. The problems the characters have made for themselves are starting to pile on top of each other, and the stakes of failure are escalating. I'm finding it easier to write more words in a session now, and I'm not sure if that's because the plot is accelerating or just because I'm getting back into practice. The manuscript is currently just shy of 39,000 words. Looking back at the month of December, I wrote a total of 14,036 words in 20 days, averaging 702 words per day. That's down a bit from November, but higher than October, or any of the 12 previous months before that. Out of the 44 months since I started doing this, December 2018 ranked 25th in overall word count. I spent 21 hours writing last month. Compared to November, my word count decreased by 25%, and my writing time decreased by 23%. For 2018 as a whole, I wrote a grand total of 92,685 words. That's a big drop compared to 2017, when I wrote 199,000 words, or 2016, when I wrote 220,000 words. It's even lower than 2015, when I didn't start writing until May and still managed to write 173,000 words. On the other hand, 92,000 words is the length of a good-sized novel, so even in a year when I spent half of it feeling uncreative and discouraged, when I didn't hit my writing stride until the last three months of the year, I still wrote a novel's worth of new material. I have to admit, I found that genuinely surprising, and also encouraging. Looking ahead to this year, I want to bring back the goal of writing six days a week. I've let that goal slip in the last year, spreading out my podcast production over more days, and losing writing time as a result. I realize that my schedule varies from week to week, and sometimes I'll have to move things around, so I'm going to state my goal this way. For 2019, I want to write at least 24 days out of every month. I'll let you know how I do with this as we move forward. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this month. Say hello to Franz. If you like my work and you want to help me keep doing this, becoming a patron is the single best way to support me. For just $3 a month, you get early access to bonus art, sneak peeks, cover reveals, and other cool stuff. Plus, every patron gets my behind-the-episode audio commentaries, and special Metamore City art by talented artists like Carol Foote and Ben Clifford. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Head on over, take a look at the reward levels, and make a pledge today. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082 followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. 
it makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.